Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Lori Ann Wood. She discovered a heart condition almost too late, and then following her diagnosis, she began blogging and has been published in print journals, and she recently published her first book. She now writes to encourage difficult faith questions along the detours of life. So I'm happy to have Lorianne here talking about her diagnosis journey and her writing and faith journey since all of that. So Lorianne, thanks so much for being here today. Why don't you go ahead and tell, tell the audience a little bit more about your story? Oh, it's so great to be here, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I, If I had thought about seven years ago or looking to where I was today, I would never have thought I'd be sitting here talking to you, especially about the subject matter that we're going to talk about. But it all started a little bit over seven years ago. I had a medical evaluation that you have for a, a life insurance policy, and they said, you're great. You have less than 3% chance of ever developing heart disease in your lifetime. And I wasn't really surprised because I had, I've always had low blood pressure and low cholesterol and all my numbers were so good. And there was, I, I never went to the doctor because, you know, outside of childbirth, I had never been in the hospital. I just had no intersection with the medical system at all. So I wasn't surprised when they told me that. But then three weeks after they told me that, I was in cardiac ICU and I had been diagnosed with end-stage heart failure. And so that time (laughs) I was completely surprised because I just thought, you know, I had the flu or maybe I had pneumonia. I was not 100% myself, but I, I had no idea that I had anything life-threatening. I would have bet all my money against that. So I went to convenient care uh, because it was the week of Thanksgiving, and I'm like, well, let's just get this taken care of. I went on Sunday, and they gave me an inhaler. And then I went back on Wednesday because I still wasn't getting any better. I was just fatigued. That was my main symptom. I was fatigued. I couldn't, toward the end of the week, I was in a position where I I really couldn't stand up and put my socks on. I thought, I just feel like I have the wind knocked out of me, like I have no energy. And, um, but my, I went to see finally after that second uh, convenient care visit and they gave me an antibiotic on that one. But after that visit, I finally went to see my PCP on Friday and he immediately listened to my heart. And he said, if we're lucky, it's pneumonia. And I remember thinking that that was going to be a significant statement. And it turned out that it was because he immediately took a chest x-ray and found that I had a very enlarged heart and he direct admitted me into ICU. And then I, um, they do what's called an echocardiogram. It's like a sonogram of the heart to, that's the most common way to determine what, how your heart is functioning. And so they did that echo and found that my heart was functioning at 6%, which to most of the nurses, almost all the nurses that we came in contact with those two weeks in ICU initially were just shocked that I had walked in on my own, but they were also very emotional to see me. And I didn't feel that bad. I was in there playing games with my kids in the hospital bed and we were watching movies and I felt tired, but I felt like they're on it now and we're going to get this resolved and I'm going to go home. And, you know, the doctors instead were thinking she's never going to leave the hospital. And they didn't tell me that until much later. But I, at first they, they said, you know, go home. Uh, We're going to send you home with a life vest, which is an external defibrillator vest that you wear. And it has a camera like device that you wear around your neck so that, if your heart 
stops beating or has an electrical problem, it'll shock your heart from outside your body. And so I wore that and uh, they gave me a lot of medication and we worked really hard to gradually increase the doses on that. But I still wasn't getting any better. And I was flown to Cleveland Clinic and became my doctor's most critical patient there for a year and a half. And if anybody's has anything to do with the heart field and medicine, they know that Cleveland Clinic is the top heart hospital in the nation, if not the world. And so when my doctor there told me first that I was her most critical patient, and then second, she, she told me uh, just this past year, she said, when I first saw you, yours was the largest heart I'd ever seen. And I, I was just kind of floored to know that. But at the time, I was just thinking, still, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get back to my life. This is all going to turn around. And I never got any better. So at nine months, they did an internal device. I got to take the life vest off after nine months, and they did an internal device that is a pacemaker and an internal defibrillator for made for heart failure. And then I just kind of continued on. I was hanging on, but I wasn't getting any better. And 16 months to the day that I was diagnosed, that weird Friday, I came down with appendicitis on top of everything else. And nobody wanted to do surgery on me. They're like, not going to touch surgery with the heart that's functioning at that low of a level. So they said, we really need to get her appendix out though. So let's look at her heart again and see where we're at. And then we'll make some decisions. They did another echo and found that my heart was functioning at near normal. And I think I was more surprised then that my heart was functioning at almost normal than I was when I was first diagnosed. And I thought, well, there's my story. You know, I had this shocking diagnosis and then I went through this hard time and now I'm back to normal and I get my story. But what happened, that was not the end of my story because about three years ago, my heart function dropped and I found myself in active heart failure again. And since that time, when I came off that normal reading, I've come down twice more. My heart function has fallen twice more. A couple of months ago, I got a new device installed at the Cleveland Clinic. And so that's sort of the nature of heart failure in general. It, um, you know, I wanted it to be something that they could fix and we could move on, but it is actually a chronic progressive disease. And you know, for most people, medical science can manage the symptoms with drugs and devices and lifestyle changes. And for some people, they can slow down the progression, but ultimately it only goes in one direction. And so that's been the story. That's the medical story that prompted everything that came after that and prompted the book and all of the changes there. So when you first were flown to the Cleveland Clinic, did you end up being there for a year and a half or was it like you were kind of coming and going? Right. I was coming and going. I So I was flown there. Um, another kind of strange part of that story is I got on the plane to be flown there and was, you know, it's a smaller plane. And so you're walking up the steps from the tarmac and I, just, I passed out and um, my husband called our PCP that the medics came in and they said, you can't fly, you can't go. And my PCP said, make them take you. This is your only chance. You go to Cleveland Clinic or you're going to have to come back here and wait in our local ER for a couple of hours. In two hours, you can be in Cleveland. Go. If it was my wife, I'd go. And so we went there and my doctor at that time was, she, she's the head of transplant and she specializes in women's heart failure. And she told me that, um, she said, I, I, I know I can help you. I just don't know how much I can help you. And she was really afraid that I wouldn't make the trip back from Arkansas where I live to, to Ohio. And so we lived in this sort of 
she sent me home because there wasn't really anything I could, anything more that she could do for me at that point. I had uh, all the medications on board and I had the life vest and they had to let me wear that for a certain number of months before they could do the internal device. And until I got to a point where I was not high functioning like I have been then and, and eligible for the heart transplant list, then she couldn't really do anything else for me. But she said later, she said that every time they got a phone call from me or from my local doctor, she said, I thought we lost you because I just didn't see how I could send you back and that you were going to survive. And, and I didn't really know that. So I came home with this mindset still of I'm going to get better. It's not that big of a deal because I really didn't feel that bad. And that's been kind of a blessing and a curse because I didn't feel that bad. And I, I still don't feel that bad. Most of the time, the fatigue is a lot still, but I, I can function at a pretty high level. And that's the blessing part. But the curse part is I should have probably seen this heart failure for about 10 or 15 years before I did, because I could just power through it. I could just function. I could just keep on keeping on. And so that part of it, um, it, it, it goes both ways, but no, I, I made trips back to the Cleveland clinic probably at first it was every three or four months and then it was every six months. And when I was doing really well and almost normal, we were going, um, a year and now I'm back to like four to six months. And so then are you on a heart transplant list? Like, is that in your future? You know, I'm not on there right now. I, um, I go back to Cleveland in October. And so in about three or four months, I go back and they do a stress test to uh, give you a marker about where you are in relation to being on the heart transplant list. So they're going to remark me in a few months, but right now I'm not. And the the reasoning that my Cleveland Clinic doctor told me is she said, if I put you on the list, there'd be a lot of people really mad at me because you're getting by so well. And even though my numbers look bad, um, most people that have these numbers are like on oxygen all the time, or they're not able to get out of bed. And because I'm just, I can, for some reason can handle that. She said, I wouldn't feel right because there's such a shortage of hearts. And I understand that. So um, we're hoping that, um, you know, I can, she told me that my heart function would not go up. I'm, my best hope is to hold steady where I am. And so we're focusing on that as long as we can to hold steady, keep checking back in, and then kind of make the decision as it comes about. And so you have this implant inside of you to monitor, make sure things are well. And you mentioned how it, it has dropped a couple times since that steady good point. What are those moments like for you? Like, what are you feeling and what is your like response? Like, do you then need to immediately fly to Cleveland or? The, the funny thing about this is that I, I feel like it's a, it's always a surprise every time I go in and get this echo every six months now it's always just a surprise to see what it's going to be because I can't tell the difference really. And part of that is because, you know, heart failure makes you, like I talked about earlier, it makes you really tired because your heart is trying to pump blood to all the body parts that need it. And so it's having a hard time keeping up. And one of the effects of that is just, you're tired. You're not getting enough blood where you need it to be. And the, kind of the double whammy of that is that the the medication that's used to treat heart failure also causes fatigue. And so my day is just really compressed from both ends. And I have this sweet spot kind of in the middle where I can get things done. But then, and, and some days, and, and my doctor told me this too, she said, 
you know, you're going to be aware every day of your life that you have heart failure, which really kind of burst my bubble when she first said that, because I really wanted to just kind of get back to where I was. And she said, this is, this is the way it is. And you should be glad that you're here because we thought we were going to lose you. She said, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. And when you can accept that some days are going to be bad days, it doesn't mean you're falling off the cliff. It just means that that's a bad day and there'll be another day and that day will be a good day. And that has really helped me because I know that that's not necessarily tied to where my heart is, my heart function is at at that point. It's just a function of the disease. And so that's always in the back of my mind. But every every time I get an echo, I'm like, ooh, maybe it'll be normal again. Even though she said, you know, it's not going to be normal again. But I, I just have that maybe you never know. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, goes back to that, those comments earlier about it's kind of a blessing and a curse to not know that I'm, t- I'm trying to be more in tune with, uh, you know, what my body's telling me, because I think for a lot of years, I really kind of ignored some of the things and made excuses for them. So I'm trying to be more aware of that. And at the same time, hold in the other hand, I'm trying to make the most of the day that I have. So it's it's kind of a balance. Definitely. Now you mentioned how prior to this diagnosis, you know, you were healthy, things were going well, and you really just kind of wanted to get back to that. So what was your day-to-day life like before now this kind of constant fatigue? Mm. I was just one of those people that never sat down before. I um, So I have three uh, children. At, at the time, I still had kids at home. And I had taught college business classes for about 25 years at that point. And so I did a lot of standing up and lecturing. And after I got heart failure, I, I couldn't stand up and I just didn't have the breath support. It just took too much energy to do it. And so that prompted a lot of changes because, you know, I was just the person that did everything at home and never sat down and never gave myself a break. But that was part of the problem too. And, you know, I was, I can look back there and and think even if I hadn't had heart failure, that was not the best way to be living regardless. So, and I think my kids are doing a better job of structuring their lives and, and, you know, factoring in that they, it's not about this, this rat race that they have to run around completely crazy all the time. And, uh, you know, that's, you live and you learn, but I think they're doing a better job than I did of that. So then what is it like kind of the mental shift of you used to always be running around, always doing things to now, you know, having to slow down a little bit and make sure you are conserving your energy for when you need it? Uh, That was a that was a hard mental shift for me because, you know, I mentioned before that I just had this idea from the time I was diagnosed that I was going to get back to my life and I had plans and I had things coming down on the horizon. And I just was pushing for that. And it took me a long time, several years probably before I realized that these closed doors that I was running up against were really a blessing to me. They were something that was not, it felt harsh when I felt that door slam and I couldn't lecture anymore or you know, I, I couldn't do all these things that I wanted to do, but when that door shut, it helped me focus onto the doors that were still open and it helped me define it because, you know, one of my weaknesses, my whole life is just having too many choices. You know, I, if I, my mom wouldn't, was not a fan of me getting the huge Crayola box because there were just too many choices and it was better if we could narrow it down. And so, you know, even in college when there were so many majors, someone needed to just help me 
really to narrow that down because I wanted to do everything. And so now as I'm, you know, facing this the last, you know, few chapters of my life, I'm looking at it and thinking, I'm so grateful that some of those doors have been closed and that focus has been defined for me because now I know exactly where to go. Now I know exactly, you know, how to spend my time and what needs attention. And before it was too much for me. And so those closed doors at first, I didn't see it, but have really been uh, beneficial in the long run to me, even though I really did not like them at the beginning. And it sounds like, you know, doors have also opened at the same time in, in your writing and, and publishing. So do you want to kind of walk us through why you started blogging and what that has been all been like for you? Yeah. So when I had this diagnosis, the, you know, the, the first thing that I started to struggle with was questions because as I mentioned before, heart failure is a really inexact diagnosis. It can be caused from a lot of different things. Some people get it uh, after they give birth to a baby. Some people get it from chemotherapy. Some people get it as a result of damage from a heart attack. Um, I had none of that. And so I wanted to know what caused this. How did this happen to me? Because I ate healthy, I exercised, I didn't have family history, I had no risk factors, and had all these questions. And my doctor early on, she said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We may never know what caused your heart failure, and it won't make any difference going forward in how we treat you, which made sense to me, but there was still something inside of me that wanted to know. I wanted an answer because... One of the things that I found as I was blogging and writing is that I had placed so much value in answers all my life. And I say that in, in opposition to questions, I thought questions, and I don't know if it's, you know, it, it could be a uh, part of my business background, or it might be um, our generation or our society. And it, it's probably a perfect storm with my personality, but I always thought that questions were a sign of weakness, that when you have a question, it means you don't know the answer. And so don't ask a question and just let it float out there because you don't know where that's going to land and it's going to make you look bad. And so I really backed away from questions for a long time. And one of the things I learned through this is that sometimes the value that you get is in asking the question and having permission to ask the question. Even when there's not an answer you're going to get, it gives you permission to examine it in your own mind. It, it releases that weight from you of, oh, what is this and how do I move forward? And when she said, we may never know, I did feel a little bit of relief, even as she said that, that, oh, we don't know. And we don't have to know. And we don't have to chase it. And we don't have to worry about it because we don't know. And, you know, she said, our best guess is that at some point during the last 15 years, a virus attacked my heart. And this was very pre-COVID. So that was something that seemed very strange when she said that. But I've learned to just kind of hold these questions and, and look at them as uh, something that can really strengthen um, your faith and really strengthen your character because you're allowing those questions to sit there and you're allowing them to exist without having to chase them all the way to the end, chase them all the way to that answer. And that was a really freeing time uh, when I could do that. And so that's one of the things that definitely I've been writing about, and it's a, a big part of the book that I wrote. And so, and I'm still learning because I'm I'm still asking a lot of questions and uh, still hoping for answers most days. But 
getting to the point where I'm comfortable with not getting answers all the time. Yeah, that's definitely something that is hard, I would say, to to deal with, um, not having answers, but the fact that you're kind of coming around to it and realizing it's now part of your life seems like it's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and one of the th- I think as I look back at other parts of my life where, you know, I, when I realized what I was doing and avoiding questions unless I already had the answer, I think I did that a lot when I was raising my kids too. Like I didn't want them to ask me a hard question if I didn't already know the answer. And so I would kind of shut them down like, oh, you know, let's don't, let's don't go there. So that was something that I can look back now and I've talked to them about it. You know, I wish I would have been better at entertaining your questions and just allowing that curiosity and allowing that exploration because the, the question scared me, to be honest. And so, you know, I'd be a different mother now, I think, if I were to raise my kids again. You've, you've got more years of knowledge. And of course, things have changed. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of, you're able to have those conversations with them now, though, to be like, I've realized, like, it's, it's not the same. You know, if you're raising kids now, it's, it's not what I was doing a number of years ago. Yes. So now do you want to share a little bit of kind of what this book is that you wrote and what, you know, your journey has been to publication? Yes. So the book started, it was kind of a strange beginning. I, I always like to write, but I was in business and accounting. I'm actually a CPA. So I was teaching um, college business classes at the time. So I was not in the field of writing at all, but I always enjoyed it and just really never gave myself the time or the urgency to do it when my life was safe and predictable. So what happened was when I was in ICU that very first time, a friend of mine dropped by this was just a little blank notebook. And I think she meant for me to write down doctor notes or prescriptions or maybe instructions for the kids at home or something like that. And what it became instead was as I was getting woken up in the middle of the night constantly in ICU for different reasons, I would just write down questions and complaints and, and really uh, just pour my heart out that I didn't understand. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. How could this be happening? And from there, and I put that notebook, I sort of closed it up and put it aside for a few months. And I didn't really expect to ever open it again. It was, it became this sort of journal, but I didn't want to ever open it again. And my husband was the one that said, you need to be writing all this down. Everything that's happening, you need to be writing down. And I didn't want to relive it. I didn't want to ever go back there, and I really resisted against it. But what I did do is people were interested in the medical story, people that knew me and family. And so I at first was just keeping them up with texts, and then I'm like, you know, people said you should put it on a blog so that people can know about what's going on. That'll be easier. So I started this blog just to talk about medical events and updates, and then you know, we hit 16 months with nothing happening and I didn't have anything to blog about. So I started just talking about questions and people having, you know, big questions in life and big questions in faith. And it was sort of like I cracked through uh, the people that were reading the blog because people would reach out immediately and say, you know, I don't have heart failure. I don't have any kind of medical story, but I have this difficult marriage or I lost a child, you know, or a miscarriage or there's a, this difficulty at work. I'm going through a bankruptcy. And they said, all of these questions that you have, even though they, bec- they came out of your medical story, they apply to me too. And then I knew that the questions that I was asking were bigger questions than just about me. And they were bigger than about my heart failure. And they were really the questions that everyone asks when they're on a detour, because 
who's not on a detour, right? Nobody's on the path they thought they were going to be on when they drew that careful map for their lives. So those questions, and they were there were so many of them. I just started writing them, and they were just at first seemed this disjointed group and eventually fell into three big life questions. And that's how the book is arranged into these three big life questions. And there are 40 essays that are standalone questions where I don't really give you, the, the reader doesn't necessarily walk away and say, oh, I've got this definitive answer to the question, but they walk away thinking, it's okay that I'm asking that too. And there is a basis for asking that. And there is a basis for feeling okay with where I'm at. I'm not hopeless. I'm not helpless. And so that's what the book became was this permission to ask the questions and also telling people to expect that they're going to have questions and they're going to have these detours. And that was what came out of it. And, and it, it was a, a very long process of putting together different, you know, and this kind of is where it overlaps with your mission, Sarah, is that each one has its own story. And part of the, you know, it might be a story from my childhood or from when I was raising kids or a current day story, but it's a story that was really just a part of my life. And, and it's nothing earth shattering. It's just like, I ran away from home, you know, I packed a lunch in a holly hobby uh, lunchbox and people would say, I had that lunchbox and I ran away from home when I was in second grade too. And it's those times when you're using the power of story where people say, oh, we're alike. I, I understand what, I understand more of what you're saying because I see that we're alike we lived at the same time, or we lived in the same area, or we thought the same thing. We struggled with the same thing in school. And those stories became what pulled people into each essay. And so I, they rely, you know, questions were a big part of it, but just as big is the fact that the stories that I was telling were my stories but they became everyone's stories in, in different little flickers of uh, recognition throughout as I was telling them. Yeah, it's definitely something that is fascinating when, you know, you can kind of connect in these smaller ways when the bigger picture is so different. Now mm -hmm. you've mentioned kind of faith a couple times and, you know, questions about that and, you know, this different sort of journey. So do you want to talk a little bit about your faith and maybe what questions you had during all of this surrounding mm -hmm. faith? Yes. So many questions that I had, I, you know, I, throughout those 40 essays, I talked about things like survivor guilt, where I didn't understand why, you know, there were three people in our congregation that were being prayed for at the same time. And I'm the only one that's still alive. And I couldn't, under, I felt a little bit bad for that because one of the people was significantly younger than me and had small children. And so, you know, I talked about things that an illness identity was another one where as you have this ongoing illness, you become sort of your life sort of becomes all about that illness, whether you want it to or not. And, and so I was asking some questions that seemed sort of disjointed. And then, like I mentioned, they went into these three categories and those three categories, I think are the questions that when we start looking at, are we going to have faith moving forward in our lives? Are we going to you know, make sense of our life through the lens of faith, there's three questions that we have to confront. And that first question, the first section of the book is, is this life all there is? And I think at some point, you know, those questions sort of nag at us in the back of our mind. But when you get off on a detour in life, it demands an answer. It demands 
I don't, I shouldn't say answer. It demands that your attention, it demands that you admit that that's a question. And so that first question that I looked at is, is this life all there is? And so when I'm looking at, uh, you know, those questions, I'm, I'm talking about things like grief and, you know, the survivor guilt and things like that. And then the second group of essays that I wrote are all about the big umbrella question of, is God always good? And that one is an interesting question because if you were to Google, you know, top faith questions, or I guess now you'd probably use AI and say, what are the top faith questions? Probably every time near the top, if not the top, is going to be, is God good? Is God always good? Because people are saying, how can the world be falling apart if this God is good? And so I was asking those questions in my little tiny emergency that I was having in my life. How can God be good? Because this doesn't feel good to me. This feels bad. And so I looked at it. All of the essays in that section are different ways of looking at, is God always good? And it gives people, you know, there was a time in my life too, in my upbringing where you didn't question if God was good. He said he was good. So, so, so he's good. But I think until we can really own that, and some of us are more prone to questions than others, that we don't, we can't really own our faith and we can't really own how we're interpreting life. So that was the second question, is God always good? And then the third question is, um, is God's plan enough? In other words, it dealt with the idea of control. Like, and I think if I were to, you know, rank all the questions, that question was the hardest one for me because I like to believe that if I could control all these little factors in my life, I could control the outcome and how my life went. And it didn't take me very long into heart failure to realize that that wasn't the case because I didn't do anything to get heart failure and nothing that I did ahead of that was going to mitigate my chances of getting it. You know, and people feel this way when they're in a car accident or, you know, some sort of natural disaster, there's nothing they could have done. And so this idea of control and how much control do I have of my life and how much control is, is something beyond me. And so I looked at that in 40 different ways, or I'm sorry, I guess it'd be 13 because there's 13 in each section. And then there's a final um, essay at the end to make 40. So 13 different ways that I looked at, you know, what, what's going on with control? Do I have any control over this? Or is this just random existence that I have? And so all of these are looked at again with a, a story that's a, just a story from my life in some, in some arena and um, looks at it through a faith lens to see. But, you know, I think a lot of people imagine a book and it's usually categorized in Christian living, um, how it, there's just an answer at the end. There's the, a tight uh, scripture at the end and it sums it all up and there you go. And don't ask a question. That's the way it is. And none of these essays are like that because um, I, tried to, I tried to be as honest and vulnerable as I could and because I was at first embarrassed to be this old and not and, and still be asking these questions. Because I've I've been you know I've been a Christian all my life, and so I wanted to give that permission to, for people, even people who had been believers for a really long time, to say when life gets hard, it's okay to still ask those questions. And so, those are the three that all of my writing seemed to want to go into: are those three life questions. And did you, while kind of like working on the book and thinking about these big three questions, did you ever kind of like think back pre, you know, diagnosis, were you having those questions then, or did it really kind of all come from this change in life? Mm, that's a really good question. You know, I think 
uh, let me say this. I, uh, my mother, I was raised by in a Christian home with a mother who never had an inkling. If she did, I never knew it inkling of a doubt about God's existence and his power and his ability to change world circumstances. And she was a wonderful example of that. And then I married a man who had that same spiritual DNA and he just, they know that they know that they know, but I can look back at my life and I can say that I've always been someone who like I can, I may wake up tomorrow and be like, okay, let's think about this again. Is this true? Can I believe this? Is this worth staking my life on? And I revisit it over and over and over. And I used to kind of be like, Ugh, I wonder why I'm like that. You know, that feels weird. Um, it's not what I, how I was raised and it's, you know, not how other people that I know are like that. And I, I started to realize that a lot of people are like that. And I don't think that makes you um, any less of a believer. It doesn't make you any less, uh, you know, valuable because we just come to faith in different ways. Some people have this certainty and some people come to it through questioning. And so I think all my life I've probably had those questions and I pushed them down and thought, hmm, you know, when I when I'm not quite so busy, I'll think about those a little bit more. And what happened was I when I got my diagnosis, it was almost like I had this, you know, real expensive vase that someone had um had passed down to me like this family heirloom. And my life was just a wreck at that point. I didn't know if I was going to live. I didn't know what was happening. I was hoping to make it to see my children graduate. They were saying I probably wouldn't. And I thought, what do I do with this vase? This faith that I have is so fragile now. And my tendency and my first thought was I'm going to put it up somewhere safe. And I'm going to come back to it. When my life comes together, I'll get the vase down and then I'll put it back out on the coffee table where it belongs. But right now it's too fragile. And the risk that I ran by doing that is it was going to be real easy to put that vase up there on the shelf and never come back to it. And I may have done that, but what I did instead is because of that journal and because my husband was saying, you need to write all this down and you need to be keeping a journal. I had to get it down. I couldn't keep a journal without getting that vase down and saying, oh no, we're going to talk about this. We're going to wrestle with it. You're going to tell me, or we're going to talk. And that helped me really hang on to my faith at a time when it would have been so much easier to just walk away. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the analogy you just shared there really helps visualize it and kind of everything you are going through. Now you've of course mentioned how, you know, your husband encouraged you to write throughout this. Um, and you've mentioned your kids, they're now grown. What was it like for your kids, for you to get this diagnosis and to hear things like, we don't expect her to see you graduate. Mm, you know, it was particularly hard on my youngest daughter. She was we that first week when we were in ICU and, and everything was so new, we thought, you know, when they said heart failure, we were thinking heart attack. We didn't know the difference. And um, it was a, maybe the second or third day I was in ICU, a doctor just came in and not a doctor that had the best interpersonal skills, but he said, um, if things don't turn around, we're looking at a heart transplant. And my daughter was horrified because, you know, like me, that sounded like something from a science fiction movie. That didn't sound like something that happens to your mother. And so it was very shocking. And, and she was a senior in high school and that whole year, which should have been about, this is our last kid at home and she's getting ready to graduate and all of these things are happening and all these celebrations it was all about me. It was all about keeping me alive and running back to Cleveland Clinic and all the changes and medications and doctor's appointments. And I used, we spent her last spring break at Cleveland Clinic getting some really bad news. And 
at first I thought, I just hate that for her. I hate that she had to be there. I hate that she had to hear it all and be so afraid. But now, you know, we have this special bond because she went through that, that really hard year at home and she understands things that, you know, the other two don't understand because they were off at college. You know, they were for the most part, were not home and I wouldn't choose it for her and I wouldn't choose it for me, but I think it's something that is, are, is always going to bind us together. Um, and, and I think she's going to be more careful about just her health in general. I think all my kids are because like I said before, there were so many symptoms that I just passed over. Um, I made excuses for, and now, you know, we talk about them and they're out in the open. And so I think that they will be a little bit more careful having gone through that. I think that's something that probably everyone's kind of looked at a little bit more in the past few years to consider their health and, and really look for the signs and not just keep shouldering on, mm -hmm. um, which is hard. <laughs> Um, but if, you know, it's, if it's one thing to take away, I think it's a good one. Mm -hmm. Now, before I start to wrap things up here at the end, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? You know, I would just say that on that idea of um, the symptoms that the symptoms that I had were just what I felt like were so small and I didn't know. I dismissed each one individually because they seem so small. My my friends were saying, oh, that's happening to me. I'm getting old. And I didn't realize that when you take all those little symptoms together, they create this huge red flag. So, you know, the things that I dismissed for 10 or 15 years were things like, um, you know, shortness of breath. I don't even think I knew what that meant. I thought, oh, what shortness of breath is. But I just, I felt like I was out of shape all the time. And I passed that off because my husband runs marathons and, you know, my kids were playing high school sports and I'm like, of course I'm the one that's out of shape. I, I admit it. I own it. You know, I need to get in shape. I'm going to get in shape. And then I tried to train for a couch to 5k with my older daughter and, you know, if anybody's ever done one of those, they know that like day one is like walk to the mailbox <laughs> and then day two is like, okay, skip to the mailbox. It starts out really, really slow and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do any of it. And I thought I have let myself go. And so I just thought it was me because I wasn't exercising like I wanted to. And, um, you know, I had... I'd have a rapid heart rate. I, you know, when I taught for 25 years, every time I'd get up to do a lecture, my heart would just beat really hard. And I thought, that's weird. I'm not nervous, but my heart was beating. And I just thought that's what everyone felt like when they said, oh, you know, public speaking, my heart was beating out of my chest. I thought, oh, okay, that's normal. And but maybe the biggest thing was that I couldn't do inclines and whether that would just be like a hill or a staircase, I couldn't make it up. I, one of the things we do in our, in our community is when kids uh, have their first day of high school, parents go with them that first day and we go to all their classes and we meet their teachers and see their schedule and all of that. And with all three of my kids, I remember going to that and having to go from one building on the first floor to the third floor of another building and having to walk up those stairs and having other parents pass me on both sides, you know, much heavier, much older parents even passing me. And I thought, that's weird, but I have really need to get a handle on this. Maybe, you know, I don't know what it is, but I couldn't imagine that it was anything with my heart. And, and then the real insidious um, symptom that I just want to share with the listeners is that they said, you know, there's a dry, constant cough that people have. And 
I was sharing these with my kids and I said, now this is one of the symptoms. It's a dry, constant cough, but I don't think I had it, but you might have it if you ever have heart failure. So be aware. And, um, one of my daughters said, Oh mom, that's how we found you. When we lost you in a store, we would just wait for you to cough. And then we would know where you were. And I had no idea. I had no idea I was even coughing. So all of those sound like, you know, I might have allergies or I'm out of shape or, you know, but when you put them all together, they, they made this end stage heart failure. And the only way that we can know that those all together add up to something significant is to just be really honest with your doctor. Um, I was kind of embarrassed and thought, yeah, I'm out of shape. I'm not going to tell him that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention that. Yeah, I know. I'm out of shape, gained a few pounds. I get it. And if I had shared those with him, we could have identified this much, much earlier because he was a very intentional doctor and felt really bad when he finally did see it. Um, but it wasn't his fault because I just wasn't sharing. So just for people to be aware and hopefully it's nothing and you know, especially now with uh, televisits and all the things that we can do without actually physically going into the doctor, I just encourage people to just share those and say, you know, this is probably nothing, but I just want to share this and document it so that it's in my record, but this is happening. And that can go a long way because heart failure and a lot of diseases can claim this is that the earlier that it's diagnose the better outcome that you'll have. Yes. And I really appreciate you, you know, sharing those symptoms and hearing them add up and that bit of advice there at the end. I think it's really important for people to hear. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is what sort of useless trivia do you know? Oh, useless trivia. Oh, I have it. When I was in fifth grade, my science teacher had us say um, two facts every day when we came into science class. And at the time, I thought, I'm going to use this one day because he's making us say it every day of fifth grade. And I never did use it except for right now. So this is my moment to use my fifth grade science facts. And that is that. Sound travels at 186,000 miles a second, and it's 93 million miles to the sun. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So if you are interested in checking out more about Lorianne's story, I'll be leaving her website in the description, along with a link to her book, Divine Detour, on Amazon, if you would like to support her in that way you are welcome to click those links and if you would like to connect with the podcast our website is in the description as well that brings you to all of our past episodes past resources and social media we are on facebook linkedin and instagram so feel free to go follow those pages and if you'd like to be a guest on the show my email is in the description that is always the best way to reach out to me and if you would like to support the podcast monetarily there is a link to do that as well so thank you so much, Laurieanne, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Such a blessing to be here.